Thank you for listening to podcast. Radio Mano Papachango. Now you're out there swimming in the I was queen of the mambo, papa was king of the Congo Deep down in the jungle, last I banging my first bongo Every monkey like to be in my place instead of me Cause I'm the king of bongo, baby, I'm the king of bongo bong back to the podcast thank you jonathan that's my brother-in-law jonathan right there by the way uh that's uh the second podcast intro mashup uh featuring my brother-in-law jonathan with his texan accent which i find uh fascinating and and interesting and uh attractive in some bizarre way um <clears throat> uh Chao, of course the radio mano papachango thing and then we have uh in the deep which is a tune that was featured in the movie crash written and performed by bird york interesting name huh i don't know if it's her real name but bird york is a pretty cool fucking name for a singer uh what else do we have uh down under i come from the land down under colin hay that's the acoustic version uh he was the the main guy in men at work and now he does a lot of solo work um uh, including some of the songs that uh, i made famous in the band but that's a great uh, I, that is such a great tune if you listen to it uh listen to the words and i really like the acoustic version he's got another uh, song called um Waiting for My Real Life to Begin, which is a fucking heartbreaker. Uh, If you can get your hands on that, listen to the words. They'll resonate, I guarantee. And then one of my favorite songs of all time is a Colin Hay tune uh, called Beautiful World. Um, It's uh, Maybe I'll play it one of these weeks. It's a wonderful song because it... Um, it you know they say the, the mark of genius is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas at the same time and uh, I think the same can be said for great works of art they're, a, they're able to be both gorgeous and brutal or uh, to celebrate two completely uh, distinct 
ideas uh, at the same time. And Beautiful World certainly does that. It, it celebrates the beauty of the world and the inadequacy of life in so many ways um, and the, uh, the wisdom in finding your satisfaction in small pleasures. And then, of course, you've got Manu Chao doing uh, Bongo Bongo, King of Bongo, I think it's called, Orishas. Uh, that's from Canto para Elewa y Chango. Then you've got um, a, a mini mashup, a mashup within the mashup of four of the versions of Way Down in the Hole that were featured on The Wire, one of the best TV shows that has ever been on the airwaves. Uh, I didn't use the Steve Earle version because I just don't dig that one as much, but I, I used the other four, Blind Boys of Alabama, Domage, uh, Neville Brothers, and of course Tom Waits' version, Who he's the guy who wrote it. Um, Domage, interestingly, I believe is a band made up of kids from the streets of Baltimore that they found uh, when they were filming. So those are the kids you hear singing there. It's the end of the year. Happy New Year. Happy Christmas. Merry, Merry New Year. Happy Christmas. Whatever. I, I really don't give a shit about these things. I, I find uh, the holiday season to be irritating and um, just like a splinter in some psychic sense. Uh, more commercials, more forced cheerfulness, more bullshit, more cutesy you know, attempts to use the cuteness of children and puppy dogs to make me buy shit. I know I'm a cynical old bastard, but that's just how I feel about it. Um, <clears throat> in Europe, often we would go to North Africa or someplace uh, not Christian in order to escape all this bullshit. But in Portland, there's really nowhere to go. So we're stuck with it. But at least in our little world, uh, it doesn't really matter. We don't have a Christmas tree. We don't have any fucking lights. We don't, don't, uh, yeah, I don't even have a Santa hat. So pardon me i don't mean to rain on your christmas cheer if you're into it um but that's not my thing Pe people have been asking me to uh to talk a little bit about what i've learned in the last few years uh and this strange journey that i've been on <clears throat> going from you know whatever it was in 2010 before the book came out i was teaching english in spain for 20 bucks an hour i was living hand to mouth i uh had been for a long time traveling, living on very little money, counting pennies, making sure everything worked out at the end of the month. And then I wrote this book and suddenly things are different. Now, it's not like I'm any kind of millionaire. It's having a best-selling book doesn't mean what it used to mean. Back in, there was a day when if you had a New York Times best-selling book, you were like, you know, buying a house in the Hamptons or something. Those days are long gone unless you're Stephen King or somebody like that. But <clears throat> uh, but it has changed my life in the sense that, you know, I can, Cassie and I can go out to dinner and I'm not thinking, well, do I have $47 in that account? Can I use this card? You know, it's like that kind of very close uh, concern about money isn't something that I have to worry about right now. I may in a few years, who knows? Uh, this is, there are no guarantees for the future. Um, but, on a social level, it's been interesting be because we've sort of been thrust into a, a media world that I never had any contact with before. I'd hung out with very wealthy people before, so I, I've seen money before. Um, 
but I ha- and I've seen like you know fashion models. I've been in that world before, so I've seen ego and beauty and attention and all that. <clears throat> but I hadn't ever really been in the Hollywood scene before. And uh, the last few years, I've I've sat down in uh, conference rooms with an awful lot of producers and agents and lawyers and various people involved in the whole Hollywood uh, scene. And uh, yeah, it's been interesting. I've learned some things. And when people ask me what I've learned, it's hard to explain really. But one image that comes to mind is I remember the first producer I was talking to about doing a TV show. I think it was like our first meeting, actually. He said to me, Okay, look, why, why do you want to do this show? What, how, how does this make sense for you? And I said, well, honestly, I don't really care uh, if we do a show, right? It's not like I don't care about being famous. I, it doesn't really matter to me. But I feel like people are asking for a show like this because they want someone who can talk about sexuality in a way that's amusing and open-minded and non-judgmental and um, educational. And uh, I think that would be valuable for people. And he said, yeah, okay, I agree with you. That's, that's, that's why I want to do this. And he said, so what's your on-air persona going to be? And I said, I don't know what you mean, my on-air persona. He said, yeah, who are you going to be on TV? I said, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to be authentic. And he kind of paused and he smiled a little bit and he said, oh, oh, I see. You're going to be authentic with air quotes. You're going to be the authentic guy. And at the time, I just sort of thought, yeah, that's kind of a dumbass thing to say. But then I realized the deeper I got into it, I realized he was right. There is no way to be real in that world because once you become a product, people expect you to be the same like McDonald's. You don't you don't go to one McDonald's and, you know, they do the burgers medium well in another McDonald's and they're all rare. That wouldn't work. Right. You want to go to McDonald's and get the same thing every time. And when you become a public figure people expect that from you. People are sometimes disappointed when I post something on my Facebook page that dares to question, uh, you know, if if rape is as widespread as some of these reports recently um, have been have been claiming. Or I, I posted something the other day talking about how men um, in the modern world, young men are, are befuddled and don't really know how to deal with women and they feel like they're being demonized and, you know, there are all these rules around dating and you have to ask everything you do and, and you know, even sometimes if women say yes, it still means no and if they've had a couple of drinks, then they can't just consent and it's like buying a house, you know. Anyway, my point isn't to push one agenda or another agenda, it's simply... My point was to say, hey, it's hard for everyone, right? And a lot of people get offended by that because they've got a sense of who I am as some kind of a consistent product based upon the way they read the book, based upon a couple of things they've probably heard me say or a couple of TV shows they saw me on or whatever. And so anytime I waver from their sense of who I am, I get all this anger, and it's really strange because from my perspective, I'm just, I'm, I'm just me, right? 
And how can you be angry at me for being me? How can you be disappointed in me for being who I am? But the reason they're disappointed is that their sense of who I am is based upon this sort of image, this brand. I hate that word, but brand. Everybody uses the word brand. You have to protect your brand. You can't, don't commit brand suicide. You know, you always have to be consistent with your brand. And if my brand is, quote, authentic, unquote, then I need to be consistent with that. And you can see how I'm doing it, right? I mean, I don't, I don't like doing advertising on this podcast. I've tried it. I've had advertisers. I have people willing to pay me money to do it. And I'm not doing it because it feels wrong to me somehow. That's brand consistency from a Hollywood perspective. Another thing that pops into my head when I think about this experience is this strange confluence of cultural events. In the 1920s, as most of you will know, um, there was this phenomenon known as blackface, which essentially was that the best music, the music that people were really digging was jazz. And everybody knew that jazz came from New Orleans and Chicago, particularly from the black uh, cultures of those areas that the black musicians were the best. They were the ones who were developing this genre of music. They were the best players. They were doing the newest stuff. But you couldn't have black people playing in a white club. And a white club is where the money was, obviously. So what they did was they had white musicians, mostly Jewish, who pretended to be black by painting their faces. Now, nobody was fooled. They knew these were white people with this black paint on their face. But it sort of made the experience feel a little more authentic, I guess. Uh, and then things started to loosen up a little bit, and some of the clubs would allow you to have a couple of black musicians in the band, but only a couple. Couldn't have a whole black band, but you could have maybe this black drummer was the better one or a black trumpeter or whatever. But in order to keep with the program, the black artists also had to put the black paint on their face. So you've got a black guy applying black paint to his face so that he can pretend to be black, which is what he is. That's what occurs to me when I think about Hollywood, because I think even the most authentic people who are part of the Hollywood scene learn to pretend to be who they are. It's a strange thing, you know, and and you see it all over the place, not just in Hollywood. Um, it's like the people aren't exactly fake. It's that they're pretending to be themselves. I mean, we've all seen it. Like a, a French dude wearing a beret, smoking Galois cigarettes, who says, ooh la la, without any irony, right? Like, come on, dude. We get it. You're French. But, uh, you know, we knew you were French by the way you smelled, right? <clears throat> Just kidding. Um, you know, or the lobster-shaped American guy who, like, shouts, fucking A, man. Like, yeah, okay, you're American. Everybody knows you're American, right? Or, like, chanting USA when Bill Laden, Bin Laden got killed, like you had anything to do with it, right? Or here's one that really gets me. The white hippies wandering around India looking all holier than now with the scraggly beards and the Indian clothing and all that. And they're barefoot. Now, if there is any place in the world where you really want to have some decent shoes, India is probably at the top of the list. And these guys are wandering around India barefoot to show how holy they are and how unafraid of 
I don't know, worms or whatever. I think in terms of L.A. anyway, I think the problem is that we're so media saturated that we take notes on how to be ourselves from the bullshit we see on screens. Right. And it starts really early. I mean, we can all tell the difference between a baby that's crying because he's scared or whatever and one who's just impersonating a crying baby. Right. We've all seen that. The baby's like, yeah, the entertainment on this flight sucks. So I'm going to do my crying baby impression for these assholes or the babies who talk that bullshit baby talk. You know, mama, I want wow. Fuck you, kid. Babies don't talk like that. Right. Or, or maybe I guess they do now. Right. I don't know. 30 years ago, it seemed like 90 percent of the gay guys I knew how to lisp. Where did that go? I guess it wasn't genetic. Portland, where I'm living now, is crawling with people pretending to be who they are. I mean, women in their 20s dressing like frontier grandmothers waiting on the Pony Express and these skinny-armed dudes sporting $150 lumberjack shirts and shit. I mean, what's going on? And where's the line between clothing and costumes, right? Which brings us to Texas, of course. I mean, Texas, to me, seems like a state full of assholes intent on pretending to be even bigger assholes. I mean, the hats and the boots and all that, seriously, Give me a fucking break, cowboys. I mean, according to that logic, Obama should be wearing a goddamn, you know, flower lay everywhere he goes. He was born in Hawaii, right? I don't know. Anyway, that's my take. I don't know. I'm giving everybody shit here. But that's my take on on L.A. and why I doubt I'm going to have any sort of a major media career in L.A. What it comes down to is that my impersonation of Christopher Ryan just isn't that consistently good. And then, of course, all this makes me think about politicians, and and it actually gives me a little respect for them in the sense that at least they're pretending to be someone they're not, which is only half as bad as pretending to be who you are. Or, or is it twice as bad? I honestly don't know. Lots of cool emails this week. Uh, One in particular that I wanted to mention is from a guy named Nathan Donin. Uh, He he sent me a a link to a video of something that he did called the Moto Taxi Junket, which is where they take these like three-wheel taxi things. They're called tuk-tuks in in, um, Thailand. I don't remember what they call them in India, but they've got them in India too. Um, And they've got them in South America. It's like a motorcycle front that's pulling a a wagon that two or three people can sit on in the back. Um, They take these things and they like, you know, go overland with them, you know, trying to cover all of South America or something. (laughs) It's crazy shit. If you uh, Google Moto Taxi Junket on YouTube, you'll see what I'm talking about. Anyway, he wrote a book called The Divide um, that deals with um, the loss of his mother and some hardcore traveling that he did and and sort of coming of age stuff. and I looked at it on, on Amazon, looked really interesting. If I had time to kick back and, and read a book right now for pleasure, I would certainly read it. Um, so I'm not recommending it based on having read it, but I am recommending it based upon uh, his uh, fantastic emails and the fact that he's a guy who goes off and cruises around Latin America on a little piece of shit and moto taxi. This week's guest is John Gowdy, who I am really happy to have had a chance to meet even if it was only over Skype. 
uh, I've been consulting and recommending uh, a book that he edited called Limited Wants, Unlimited Means, a reader on hunter-gatherer economics and the environment. I've been recommending this book to people uh, probably 10 years now. Uh, it's If you want to get a sense of how our hunter-gatherer ancestors lived, um, you know, you can read my stuff, but you can also go more closer to the source um, because I consulted this book a lot and I quoted a lot. Uh, it's fantastic. It's It's got a collection of different papers and, you know, ranging from the classic uh, Marshall Salins paper, the original Affluent Society, to much more um, recent research on hunter-gatherer economics. He's a really interesting guy, uh, as you'll hear. He's got a unique perspective on these things. He's extremely well um, <clears throat> informed on the way hunter-gatherers deal with everything that falls into the purview of economics, right? How do they deal with uh, imbalances and inabilities and status uh, and uh, how do they distribute resources and so on and so forth. So I think you'll find this conversation very interesting. I certainly did. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful end of year whenever you're listening to this. It's kind of weird to be topical or, um, you know, talk about what's happening right now in the world because you might be listening to this a year from now. So I won't get into that too much. But it is the end of the year here. It's cold. It's rainy. And I'm working on this book. And, man, I hope I have it done by the time the flowers come out in Portland because I want to go out and have a good time this spring. So I'm going to get back to work. You enjoy this podcast. I hope you're well. Thank you. Bye. All right. Well, I'm here with Dr. John Gowdy. It's it's a real honor to to be speaking with you, sir. I've been such a fan uh, of particularly um, Limited Once, Unlimited Means uh, since it came out. It's one of the books. It's up on my website. It's one of the books I recommend to people immediately when anyone asks me for just a good introduction to a sort of... Uh, uh, an alternative to the neo Hobbesian vision of human nature. Yeah, that's at the top of my list. How how did you get into this? It's it, you're in sort of a well within academics. You're you're a bit of an outlier, aren't you? Yeah, quite a bit. Uh, I came into uh, economics late, actually. Uh, colleagues would say you entered it late and left it early, but uh, I started out actually in anthropology. And uh, <clears throat> um, I've always, and that, that really got me interested in, in hunt, hunters and gatherers and sort of alternatives to contemporary society. Of course, I was a child of the 60s and uh, civil rights demonstrations, anti war demonstrations, and all that. And uh, I was in graduate school in anthropology uh, at American University. Uh, then I was, uh, I went on some digs, and one was on Nantucket Island, but uh, the other was in uh, the southwest in New Mexico. So I spent a summer uh, excavating Anazazi sites and a, an early man site. It just got me interested in looking at whole cultures. I mean, archaeologists and anthropologists just, uh, you know, tend to have a sort of a wide view of society. So, yeah. uh, and and on this dig, we, I mean, it was just amazing the different people who came uh, I remember there was a, a guy who was called a, a paleobotanist, uh, and he came and he would look at these preserved little pieces of corn and, and sort of describe the landscape and so on and what role it played. And um, they could even look at um, the, the pillars of these houses were made out of trees. 
And as the, the society uh, you know, became more mature, they used up the resources around them. And they were able to match the tree rings of a, a particular tree um, and that was used to support in this house to, a, to where the tree came from, you know, something like 20 or 30 miles away. Uh, so it just, uh, you know, the, the whole notion of, of looking at whole societies and then sort of the, the gradual, you know, not really overshoot and collapse in that case, but sort of the the race uh, between technology and environmental degradation um, after agriculture. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's amazing, both what you were saying about how specialists can see so much in, in what we would consider an insignificant detail, a grain of corn, or yeah. I remember when I, I first came across the idea of uh, Harris lines and how uh, by looking at these very old skeletons, and seeing the the varying density of the of the bone uh, tissue in in the long bones, particularly the femur, uh, archaeologists could tell whether or not this person had ever lived through a famine. Wow! Just, wow. Yeah, kind of like yeah. you know rings on a tree. You can see growth patterns and so on. Right. So interesting. There's, yeah, there's another guy, a geologist that came out again on this dig in New Mexico and. Uh, we were overlooking that this sort of this looked like a, a plane, you know, a level plane with a ridge. And he said, oh, yeah, this used to be a lake. And he described the, where the lake was and oh, this was here, this was there. And there was probably a settlement on the edge of the lake over there pointed, you know, maybe half a mile away. And, uh, but, you know, just to really uh, see things. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. Do you ever think about the fact that... Uh most of the archaeological ruins of our early ancestors, you know, the out of Africa period when people were spreading around the the globe are now 300 feet underwater. Oh, yeah. Right. Isn't that interesting? It's amazing. Yeah. Especially uh, that's sort of um, the population of the Americas. They think it really along, uh, you know, what's now the coast, but was land back then. Yeah. Of course, the Gulf of Carpentaria. Uh, in Australia, was a land bridge between Australia and New Guinea. Yeah. Very strange. And so what we're finding from, from those periods, uh, you know, when the sea level was so much lower, what we're finding are not typical settlements, right? We're finding generally inland settlements from people who were either driven inland for some reason or maybe hunting expeditions or whatever. But it's sort of as if, and maybe we'll see this, uh, you know, sea level goes up and, and many of the major settlements are completely destroyed and lost, yeah. at least the archaeology. So we're finding these atypical settlements and yet we're extrapolating from them. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. I wonder if there's any of the technology will ever be such that we can find those uh, settlements, what's now underwater. I don't know. The ones that exist, right? I mean, if, if they're still there, but right. because of wave action and the corrosion yeah. of sand and so on and, you know, tidal uh, movements, I imagine a lot of them are just completely destroyed. Yeah. You know, particularly hunter-gatherer sites, you know, where there's not, not no sort of marble structures or anything like that that would persist over time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you you got your PhD in anthropology, or no? I was in uh, graduate school at UMass, and I was drafted. Actually, this is oh. nice. So, uh, spent most of uh, 1969 in Vietnam as a soldier. Although I worked in a medical unit, so it wasn't too bad. So you were drafted out of graduate school. Yeah, I was. In, I was at a 
uh, I went to, I lived at that point in suburban Washington, D.C., Falls Church, Virginia, and it was, you know, everybody went to college, and they were drafting everybody from that. Oh, uh, uh, right. Draft yeah. Try to get Yeah, I, I actually was born as a way to keep my father out of the war. Oh, yeah. But that was earlier in the 60s when being in grad school still got you uh, a waiver. Yeah. And, and then having a child, you know, I guess was the yeah. an additional thing. So uh, so you were studying anthropology, you went to Vietnam, you were there for a year? Where, where were you stationed? A uh, place called Long Bend. Uh, I was, uh, again, I was in a medical unit, 332nd Dispensary, right near the, uh, the Long Bend Jail, LBJ, Silver City, we used to call it. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, uh, I wouldn't say it was worthwhile, but it was, a, you know, it was an eye-opening experience. Did it inform your your subsequent research and studies? Uh, only indirectly. Uh, I mean, I was involved in anti-war activities before I was drafted, and then it's, being in Vietnam certainly gave me credibility when I got out. Right. Uh, I was in Vietnam Veterans Against the War and so on. And did you sort of move <coughs> into this? Now, what I'm describing is a, a, a non-neo-Hobbesian perspective for people who don't know what I'm talking about. Hobbes was the person who famously said that uh, before the advent of the state, human life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Right. Um, and there's a, a schism within social sciences where one side argues that Hobbes was right. People like Steven Pinker, who I'm constantly beating up on this podcast and elsewhere yeah and uh and then on the other side you have people like um maybe howard zinn uh, marshall salins uh yourself and doug fry a lot of people arguing that um in fact it's inaccurate to say that human nature is innately violent and and that war it goes back to our primate past and all that um and there are different explanations for the origin of war some of them economic um, yeah. Did you were were you sort of oriented in this way from the get go, or did you have a, a, a transitional moment? No, I was. I think I was always sympathetic to hunter gatherers, and, and of course, uh, uh, the I guess the big breakthrough was in um, you know the Man the Hunter conference in 1968, uh, right. especially Richard Lee, and they started putting uh, all these people came who had actually lived in hunter gatherer cultures, and they. You know, they found life there really uh, wasn't so bad. I mean, they're humans, have human uh, thought, thoughts like everybody else. But, uh, you know, they worked, uh, what, something like 20 hours a week, and at what, not at what we would really call work. Uh, you know, they had everything they needed. But, uh, you know, Richard Lee, uh, Lorna Marshall, of course, Marshall Solins, uh, all this information sort of came together. And uh, then there was a naturally, as always happens in academia, there was a, a backlash against that. Uh, and they, they were accused of romanticizing these, uh, these people and so on. Why do you think that persists, that, that sort of dismissal of the, the, the very low levels of violence within hunter-gatherer societies, the you know, high levels of um, sexual equality? Yeah. You know, what? That's well demonstrated in the literature. There's really, uh, yeah, and it's it's held up really well. Yeah, I mean the the general egalitarianism of band level hunter gatherer societies is they're they're really as far as I'm as far as I know there's 
no evidence that that's not accurate. And yet this view that people who um, subscribe to this understanding of hunter-gatherers and therefore of most of our history uh, as a species or prehistory as a species are silly romantics. Yeah, I mean, it just goes against the grain of progress and so on. And agriculture was this big breakthrough that made civilization uh, possible and all that. You know, life was miserable before that. Right. So do you think it's essentially a political argument? Yeah, I think it's it's more, it's even, uh, I think, more subconscious than that. It's sort of this, what Solon's called cosmologies that we believe in. Uh, you know, the notion of progress, the notion of a harmonious universe, and so on. Yeah. Uh, so, and, you know, I mean, I guess that Solomon's dressed it back, like economics, actually, back to the Garden of Eden. You know, he had this uh, idealized system that took care of itself, and then, you know, man interfered with God's will. I mean, you know, substitute the market for God's will, and you have modern political economy. Okay. <laughs> that, yeah, that I think that's going to be the uh, the quote that we'll open the podcast with there. Uh, <laughs> that that's very profound. You throw it off in an offhand manner, but essentially what you're saying is that th- if I understand you correctly, the the sort of uh, neoconservative faith in the market is not science; it's mythology or even a religious yeah. impulse. Yeah, Marshall Solison's has a really nice phrase, if I remember it correctly, but something like uh, uh, the genesis of economics was the economics of genesis. Something so. Ah, very yeah. nice, yeah. So, well, uh, that, and that also explains why it's so <clears throat> difficult to, why the same arguments are, never seem to go away. Yeah. It's because just evidence so, doesn't yeah. matter. Right, exactly. It's so uh, it's just so ingrained in the way people are, you know, people like us are brought up to look at the world. And of course, other cultures have very different viewpoints. Yeah. Have you been involved at all in in any of the 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 back and forth with uh, Napoleon Chagnon? I've just I've read it. I haven't been. I haven't contributed to those uh, those blogs. No. Yeah. He's yeah. For people who don't know, Napoleon Chagnon wrote the what was it called? The Fierce People, right? Uh, which yeah, is Yanomami, or yeah, and the Yanomami arguing uh, that their their warlike nature is uh, evidence of of the nature of human the yeah. human past. Yeah. Al- although it's uh, we, we talked about that a bit in Sex at Dawn, how he was passing out um, machetes and, uh, you know, sowing the seeds of discord that he then later reported as being naturally occurring. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, how do you find, are you tenured, by the way? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm getting near, thinking about retiring every year, more and more every year. Ah, okay. Uh, How do you find being in the in the academic battlefield uh, dealing with these issues in the United States? Is it, uh, have you had issues, um, you know, political issues in terms of uh, political correctness and academia and all that? It just seems so nasty to me as someone who's looking at it from outside. It's just unnecessarily nasty. And uh, and then the political correctness too, I mean, um, they're just issues that have been taken off the table. And, you know, I consider myself left politically, but uh, it was really the left that took population, for example, off the table. 
What do you mean population? Well, the idea of overpopulation and, you know, family planning and all that. It was just, you know, considered genocide and colonialism and so on. Yeah. It's something you can't talk about. Yeah. Isn't that strange? Yeah. You know, it, it, speaking of things you can't talk about, the, you know, thinking about so many things that are not acceptable for scientific study or even polite conversation. If the, yeah. if the Nazis had anything to do with them, you can't talk about them. Uh, yeah. You know? Right. Like, uh, yeah. Like genes. Exactly. Genes. Exactly. Like eugenics. Yeah. yeah it, you know, any, any discussion of, of trying to um, shape in any way the, the future of the species is completely off the table, although we continue yeah. to do it in farming practices and, you know, right. pets and everything else. That's fine. Yeah. But when it comes to humans, it's, it's uh, you know, forbidden, uh, forbidden to even think about it. Yeah. Very strange. And it's sort of a historical happenstance. Yeah, and I think uh, it's really set social science back, I think, for decades, as sort of a reaction against uh, 1970s uh, sociobiology. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and when I present my, I've been uh, working lately on something called ultra-sociality, but, um, I mean, a lot of social scientists just get their back, oh, that, you know, that sociobiology, so that's the end of the conversation. You know, not realizing that um, in terms of genetics and, and uh the evol and human evolution he's completely changed since uh his work in the 70s uh, and he really he accepts something called group selection i've been working with uh, a biologist anthropologist uh, david sloan wilson at uh, suny binghamton and uh, yeah you're talking about um eo wilson as well eo wilson is, yeah in the social social biology yeah which he's is got, now referred to as evolutionary psychology i believe Although, yeah, they're different. Yeah, Evo Devo, they're different strands of it. Yeah, yeah, which, but, uh, yeah, which gets back into the whole political conversation. But to yeah. go to the, uh, what was the phrase? Super social. So, uh, ultra ultra sociality. Uh, insects. It's you sociality. Right, right. Now I read your paper last night. I I was yeah. up till two in the morning reading that paper. Uh -oh. Very very interesting paper. Uh, when when and where will it be published? It's uh, it's a revised version is under review now, and I probably shouldn't say the name of the journal because I'm not sure if it'll be accepted or not. Oh, okay, all right. So. Um, well, when it comes out, I'll I'll be sure to link to a, a PDF um, if it's publicly available through my website. So if, yeah, uh, there are other ver versions of it. This is work uh, with a colleague, Lisi Crawl, uh, who's an economist at um, uh, SUNY Cortland. Very interesting person. Uh, her stepfather uh, was Paul Shepard, who wrote a lot about hunter-gatherers. Right, right. The Tent Carnivore was one book. Well, and, uh, yeah. the, the paper is fascinating. Can you just summarize uh, briefly what the, the thesis is? Yeah, uh, it's been, uh, it's bothered me for a long time that people really miss the, the, incredible break that agriculture was, a break with the past. Uh, people lived as hunter-gatherers for, depending on what you call human, uh, you know, Homo erectus starting there two million years ago, uh, Homo sapiens probably a couple of hundred thousand years. So it's really in the last five percent of human, uh, you know, the life of our species that really had agriculture. And it was just like night and day. Uh, the population 
say, 12, 15,000 year, years ago, is probably something like 4 million human population on the planet. And it just spiked up to something like, I think it was 600 million uh, within a couple thousand years. And uh, it totally, it, that we argue in the paper that it really, um, this is when economic society really became economic. Uh, and as hunter-gatherers, uh, people lived off uh, flows uh, from nature. Uh, you know, the, and if they overhunted uh, animals, you know, it came right back to bite them or overharvested plants. I mean, it wasn't that they were more uh, moral than we are, but just the way they made a living sort of dictated uh, sustainability. Uh, and then they had all these rules, as you mentioned, uh, that kept the societies egalitarian. Uh, so a guy, Christopher Bohm, has written recently uh, a lot about this, the egalitarian aspect. But... Um, the, the, the really breakthrough in agriculture, and, and we share this with ants and termites, is uh, actively controlling the production of our own food. Uh, so we start doing that. I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, populations expanded without agriculture as the species moved into a new area and so on. Um, you know, humans moved into the new world and, you know, took over and expanded. But when you start controlling your own food supply, producing your own flu food, that's just a, that's a, a new thing. And, and it was very rare to occur. Uh, according to E.O. Wilson, it only happened maybe 10 or 12 times um, in the history of, of all species. But those species, they evolved into a lot more species, and, and they dominate the planet. I mean, humans are uh, something like 10 times, the total weight of humans is like 10 times the weight of all the other vertebrates combined. And likewise, uh, social insects, uh, they're about 2% of species now, but they comprise about 75% of the Earth's biomass. Yeah, I so, saw in your paper there was a great moment where you, you say that the if you add up the biomass of humans and the biomass of ants, they end up being virtually the same. Yeah, that's a calculate, that's sort of back-of-the-envelope calculation E.O. Wilson made. Yeah, very interesting. Mm. So, so I never thought about... Uh, anthills as, as in terms of economics before. Yeah, and we argue that uh, once uh, the uh, animals started actively producing food, then these economic laws uh, sort of kick in. You know, the advantages of division of labor, uh, the advantages of larger size, economies of scale, and so on. Um, and also tapping into stocks. Uh, this is something, again, these ideas where my co-author co and I are still developing. But um, with agriculture, humans were able to tap into the stock of fertile soil, for example, mm. and, uh, and existing you know, water supply and so on. And you know, gradually, uh, soil fertility was lost as they drew that down. And then, of course, more recently, the stocks of fossil fuels. Right. And but it, just, it gave a, a tremendous evolutionary advantage to these species. And I've been, again, I'm not a, a biologist, but getting into the ant literature, I mean, the parallels are just astonishing. Yeah, even to the point where, uh, as you say, quite explicitly, as with ants, individual quality of life declines as social complexity increases. Now, yeah. so... Would you say that individual quality of life has declined uh, in humans as well since the advent of agriculture? Uh, I would <coughs> uh, 
<clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's hard for us to judge. Uh, first of all, I mean, most of us, uh, most of the people living in, listening to your show are, you know, probably academics or, you know, avid readers and so on. And, yeah, we have we have it really good. I mean, uh, I would be I'd be long dead now if I lived in a, was born in a hunter-gatherer society in the, the Pleistocene, so it's hard to judge. But there's some interesting work. Uh, there's a guy, um, Larson, I forget his first name, Christopher Larson, uh, wrote a paper with this, uh, he had this grant to do this extensive database of uh, uh, skeletons uh, of uh, populations since the advent of agriculture 10,000 years ago until today. And he argues that people were actually worse off until quite recently. Uh, until I mean, the, the average lifespan in 1900 worldwide was something like 30. Hunter-gatherers, it was a little bit uh, more than that. So it's only in the last uh, century or so that you know lifespans have gone to where they are today, and you know it may be just be a blip. I mean, uh, things look pretty bleak if you look ahead with climate change and yeah, nuclear also, terrorism, whatever. And we, uh, we should stipulate when you talk about lifespan, you're talking about an average that includes <laughs> infant mortality. Exactly. Uh, so and I'm not, you're, yeah. not saying that that the uh, an old person was thirty. Right. Yeah. And uh, if you look at uh, uh, mortality in hunter-gatherers, if you made it to age five or so, it seems, in these societies, then you were, you know, maybe not lived to a ripe old age, but you could count on living to, you know, 50 or 60. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a, a lot of studies uh, showing, I mean, even chimpanzees live into their 50s. Yeah. Um, but uh, so Christopher Larson, the the idea of quality of life is something I'm working on a lot now with uh, the book I'm I'm working on at the moment. And the the thing is, you know, depending on what parameters we're looking at, um, you can come up with lots of different answers here. But you know, people often say, well, yeah, but we have antibiotics without understanding that uh, the main things we use antibiotics to fight against weren't issues in hunter-gatherer societies, right? Right, Infectious yeah. Diseases. Disease, yeah. Diseases came from congested living. Right, and living close to domesticated animals so the viruses could jump, you know, jump over. Um, yeah. You mentioned uh, um, Bohm's work earlier. Anyone who wants to check that out, Hierarchy in the Forest, I think right. is an excellent uh, introduction to that. He argues basically that the egalitarianism of hunter-gatherers uh, is is an intentional political um, result of mechanisms designed to stop anyone from accruing too much power and status. Right. He calls it. He says they're aggressively egalitarian. Uh, right. You know, for example, uh, the best hunters didn't get to decide who gets the meat. It was actually in some societies, it was like the owner of the arrow that killed the animal. Yeah, and they always uh, exchange arrows before they go out hunting. Right. Yeah, very interesting. And you, you made another point. You said it's hard for us to judge, um, which is certainly true. Uh, you know, any of us who were born, you know, with any sort of uh, uh, disease or medical issue that needed immediate attention, we wouldn't be alive in hunter-gatherer society. Right. And yet, um, you know, there are ways to, to sort of make a, an objective comparison. One of them that I find interesting is when hunter-gatherers have had the opportunity to join civilization, they've almost always refused. Right, yeah. And you mentioned the, the famous mon, mongo, mongo Mongo Nuts uh, quote. Right. Yeah, why should we? Yeah. 
Yeah, every time they're they're offered, you know, farming technology or I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the three uh, Fugian Indians who were uh, taken to England by the captain of the Beagle. Right. Um, before uh, Darwin on an earlier trip, he took them to England and uh, they were 14 months in England mm. being educated and all that. And then they were on the ship going back to uh, Tierra del Fuego with Darwin on the famous voyage huh. of the Beagle. And uh, that was a debacle. They, they, uh, the idea was that they would um, teach their people uh, the respect uh, for the British ways and that everyone would then want to, you know, join the British. Mm. And in fact, what happened was that they uh, abandoned their gardens and huts immediately and went back to living the way they had. <laughs> sure. Much to the disappointment of Darwin. Um, you, you we're talking about morality, and, and you're careful to make the point that hunter-gatherers aren't more moral. Uh, the, you know, the whole noble savage thing um, isn't an accurate way to look at hunter-gatherers. And yet, isn't it interesting that the—and I, I completely agree with you that the, the egalitarianism of hunter-gatherers uh, and, and many of the other qualities that um, that we admire about the way they lived uh, are simply the most practical way to live in that ecological circumstance. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can't, you're not going to survive if you're selfish. You're only going to survive if you share because no matter how good a hunter you are, you're not going to get something every day. Um, yeah, and there's there's a lot of really interesting literature, again, coming from the, the group selection stuff, uh, David Wilson and so on. One thing that, that bothers me, though, is they, um, biologists are too hung up on uh, genetics, I think. And so they, they sort of look at the characteristics of hunter-gatherers and say, okay, these have been carried on to modern society, you know, sort of, again, without looking at the, um, the transition that happened with agriculture in terms of economic organization uh, and so on. But, but yeah, I think we have... Uh, one thing that really bothers me is this notion of, uh, you know, uh, hunter gatherers were, you know, over overkill their animals, uh, you know, the sort of a, uh, you know, overkill hypothesis. Uh, so, somehow that people are destroying the environment today because we're inherently evil at some sort of genetic thing and so on. Yeah, I actually downloaded the paper you referenced on that last night, uh, Grayson oh, yeah. and Meltzer. Um, right. Yeah, the, on the questioning. Overkill, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And people I, I really respect, like George Monbiot, for example, had a blog I was reading yesterday sort of making this case that, uh, and Ronald Wright, I think, says the same thing. Another guy I really respect. But, uh, yeah, but I think they just, uh, I think they miss it. George Monbiot, you're talking about the, the British journalist. Right, columnist for The Guardian. Really, yeah. I mean, really great writer, great person, seems like. Yeah, yeah, he is, he is excellent. I've been reading him for years as well. Yeah. Um, but what I was going to say is, isn't it interesting how these behaviors uh, and sort of social conventions that are uh, typical of hunter-gatherer societies are still seen as things that we, we value um, sort of innately and yet are in conflict with much of the economic um, context of the modern world? In other words, you know, we still say... We still admire those who help strangers, right? The pay it forward yeah. and the, you know, the, the acts of kindness and all this stuff is still celebrated. And yeah. yet they're in conflict with, you know, save your money, um, greed is good, the whole sort of, you know, the invisible hand will take care of the... Right, rational economics. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, the, the, the conflict that we, uh, how can I say this? It seems like this conflict between um, generosity and kindness and that vision of the world yeah, and the the vision of the world that that's being propagandized so much is really a conflict between a hunter gatherer approach to life and a farming approach to life. Yeah, and there's there's actually been a lot of interesting studies about money. Um, there's paper in Science. I can't remember the author, but um, she had people do um, you know do some sort of simple task, and she gave them a small amount of money, and uh, on the way out they were. Uh, given the opportunity to donate this money for charity, some you know, needy students uh, found fund or something, and some of the people had they had work uh, they had them work under just a picture of a landscape or a seascape. The other group uh, worked under a, a picture of money, you know, just a picture of you know coins or something, and and that group. The work group that worked with the money inside gave a lot less to the charitable donations. Really, and they were had to put together like uh, random words into a sentence, and the ones that uh, had sentences with something to do with the word money in it gave a lot less, and so on. Unbelievable. It, yeah, really, and, and um, it, it seems to be that uh, you know money. If you have money, it gives you some sense of independence. You know, the more money you have, I mean, you know, we're all struggling with retirement and, uh, you know, health care and all that. But the more money you have, the more independent it makes you from being uh, dependent on others. And it sort of undermines this whole social fabric. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, the more independent it makes you economically, but not psychologically. Yeah, right. Exactly. Which, yeah. you know, which gets back to the, the, the sort of question of quality of life, right? Because... Yeah. You know, we look at life now and we say, well, we've got, you know, all this leisure time and, and uh, we, you know, I don't need to hunt for food. I don't need to do. But um, every one of those things has negative um, repercussions like, OK, you've got all this leisure time. So you end up obese and with heart disease and diabetes because you never move, you know. Um, and, uh, and and I think a lot of this sort of fragmentation that money buys us leads to depression and you know ever-increasing suicide rates and so on and so forth yeah Yeah, the question of mental health uh in this transition from hunter-gatherer to farming is is interesting you know and the the whole notion of uh you know how much control we have over our lives too i've been fascinated with this again against this paper um that we just wrote, wrote has something in it to offend everyone, but we argue that hunter-gatherers were actually uh, a lot, lot more autonomous in the sense that if you were born into a hunter-gatherer society, you had to know everything uh, you needed to know to make a living. I mean, you knew the, you know, the, the seasons of the animals and the plants and so on. So you weren't uh, dependent on specific others as you are in this society. And that, that's actually something that Adam Smith pointed out. I think that's in the paper. Yeah, yeah, you quote him showing how uh, in the brute societies yeah. uh, everyone could do everything, but there is no specialization. And and the, the fact that everyone can do everything, uh, everyone knows how to build a shelter, everyone knows where the berries and the roots are and how to snare an animal, also means that no one can exercise coercive power over anyone else. Yeah. Because you, you can't cut them off from what they need. Right, yeah. I have a quote here by Marx, actually. He said, the, the vitality of primitive communities was incomparably greater than that of modern capitalist societies. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, now, here's, 
the one thing that I kept thinking about last night when I was reading your paper, and I, I think it's brilliant, by the way, to look at these different levels of organization in almost a fractal sense, right? Where, you, yes. where civilizations right. are organisms. They're living organisms just as much as a termite hill is a living organism. Excellent. Um, you know, and, and we talk about ourselves as individuals, but one of the things I'm getting into and doing a lot of research on right now is uh, the microbiome. Oh, yeah. Right? So, you know, over 80% of, of our body mass, if you take out the water, is composed of organisms that don't have our DNA. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So even thinking of the individual as an individual is a stretch. Yeah. Right? So, like, people who say, well, I mean, it's kind of silly to think of a society as an organism. Well, <clears throat> no more silly than it is to think of yourself as an organism. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you can take go up or down the scale. But so what I was thinking about is, you know, the human superorganism um, and the leaf cutter colony, leaf cutter ant colony uh, are, is I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is this natural? Yeah, it may be. It may be natural, but that, of course, doesn't mean that it's good. Right. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, if we're evolved, of course, ants and termites have been around for something like 50 million years, you know, with agriculture, humans about 10,000 at most. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, we argue in that paper, it's really beginning to strip away some of the things that makes us, uh, makes us human. Uh, or is this what makes us human? Is this capacity to congeal into some higher scale yeah. organism? part of what makes us human and maybe the most important well it may be changing uh, well, we make the point in the paper there's a difference between uh, coordination and cooperation uh, i mean a lot of economists especially write well okay you, isn't this wonderful you look at a car it was made in 10 or 50 different countries or whatever uh, that means people are cooperating and we're becoming more international well you know it really doesn't i mean you drive a car you don't know where the parts come from it's a mechanical thing mm. Uh, and biology, the term they use is, uh, and superorganism term is control without hierarchy. So um, we are in that paper that with when state societies began to develop, sort of whole groups were selected that had certain characteristics that enabled them to produce and protect their food supply. Uh, and so we, you know, we have these rules now. We have to act in a certain way, but we just uh, just don't see them. And if you look at sort of politically, it, it turns everything on its head. I mean, I'm working on another paper now, sort of the, the politics of it. But if you look at libertarianism, sort of an objectivism of someone like Ayn Rand, I mean, I argue that it's really the, the philosophy of an ant colony. You know, you're supposed to sacrifice yourself to this superorganism that's the market. And you're only judged according to what you produce, which is an economic theory, really. Milton Friedman sort of says that. So that's a real mind blower because you're saying that Ayn Rand, who's the the sort of uh, emblematic philosopher of selfishness, <clears throat> is actually advocating, even though she probably didn't know it, is actually right. advocating self sacrifice for the collective. For yeah. the collective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> she would hate to hear you say that. Oh yeah, my students. Some of my students are Ayn Rand. They they get their backs up over that, but really, it's an eye opening thing. Uh, but I think in the in the virtue of selfishness, she's, she, this essay she makes the point uh, 
you know, something like if, if two people are competing for a job and one person realizes the other is more, uh, you know, more capable, then that person should give up and let the other person have the job. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of, you know, John, what was it John Galt's speech? And what was it? It was in the, fountainhead. the fountainhead. Yeah, the fountainhead, I guess. I mean, he, get, you know, gives us sort of the revolt of the 1%. He tells the rest of, you know, we don't need you. We fed you. We've clothed, clothed you. Uh, you know, go away. Yeah. So, you know, what <laughs> ask yourself, you know, what is human society? Uh, what are, where, where are all the connections between uh, humans that, that made us, you know, reason why we're here today which really is cooperation and caring yeah yeah they, you know i often refer to ptsd when when people say well you know what is human nature because obviously we've got capacity for incredible violence and cruelty and yet also capacity for uh, generosity to strangers and so on yeah, yeah. and you know yeah, there's a full range of possibility there, but nobody's suffering from PTSD because they helped a stranger. So there, there is, I think there is a clear orientation in our nature toward uh, a much more positive uh, sort of behavior than we're led to believe. And, you know, that relates back to the whole neo-Hobbesian vision of life. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know it's interesting. You, you we talk about societies and you know in terms of ultra sociality, we talk about how it's extremely rare and yet extremely successful mm. in nature. Uh, looking at both human, at least if we look up until this moment, and certainly in the the uh, social insects that you cite in your paper, and yet what do we mean by success? Yeah. You're right. I mean, the social, I guess, in, in bio, biological terms, in, you know, spreading genes and all that, I mean, the, the larger the population, the more successful a species is. And certainly ants and termites, I mean, they really dominate, uh, dominate the planet. And they've, they've worked out over, again, 50 million years, uh, sustainable systems. Um, but they, you know, they dominate ecosystems. Uh, the individual is, uh, you know, subjugated to the, the will of this group entity and so on. Uh, humans are, you know, another story. We're not ants. And, uh, you know, an ant is born to do a certain uh, task, a soldier or, a, you know, a leaf carrier or a leaf cutter and so on. And humans, there's no reason why one human, you know, why should one human be uh, Donald Trump and another human be a... You know, a poor farmer in Nigeria. There's no biological reason, and so the this the whole class struggle and the you know the struggle over surplus uh, is a really destabilizing thing in human societies. Yeah, interesting point. There's no biological reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although Donald Trump would probably argue that there is. Yeah, right. And Ayn Rand probably. <laughs> Right. You know, uh, Andrew Carnegie, when he set up uh, the system of libraries in the Northeast United States, there was only one book that he insisted had to be carried in every branch. You have a guess what it was? Origin of the Species. Exactly. Yeah. Well. yeah. So, and that relates back to what we were saying earlier about how some ideas uh, are either suppressed or, or celebrated because of their... Yeah usefulness or historical happenstance yeah and, you know and Dar it, uh, no doubt darwin was a great genius and and very interesting man but i wonder if you know the sort of obsession over genes that you referred to earlier and 
the the sort of uh, almost religious celebration of Darwin. I wonder to what extent that is attributable to the fact that seen in a certain way, Darwinian theory is extremely economic and extremely convenient for those who argue that, uh, you know, the fittest uh, thrive and everyone else just has to sort of um, fall by the wayside because that's nature. Yeah, I mean, Darwin himself really didn't believe that. He was, you know, a very decent person. Of yeah. course, the Wedgwood family was active against anti-slavery campaigns and so on. But, yeah, the guy that really pushed Darwin, uh, this sort of social Darwinism, was Herbert Spencer, of course. And when people talked, you mentioned the word evolution in the, you know, the say, last half of the 1800s, they thought about Herbert Spencer. Yeah. And it was economists that really uh, made that really nasty, a guy named William Graham Sumner, an economist at Yale. Uh, and then these ideas, I mean, it's sort of in a softer form. It's, it's embedded in economic theory, something called the marginal productivity theory of distribution. You know, a person is paid in a competitive economy. A person will be paid according to what they contribute to the, you know, the marginal increment in, uh, in output or income. Hmm. Yeah, uh, although that, that's, that theory sort of, uh, I, I think hedge fund managers put that theory <laughs> to, to a test. Yeah. Do you, do you consider economics to be a science? Uh, not uh, not exactly. No, not really. I think it's. Uh, I mean, it, it it can be. Some people apply the scientific method to economic phenomena. I think, but uh, in general, um, it's based on something called welfare economics or Balrasian economics, and so on. Sort of this mathematical superstructure that's um, a justification for market economies. Uh, it's, there's something called the first fundamental theorem of welfare economics. It says uh, something like, you know, a, a perfectly competitive market will lead to Pareto optimality. I mean, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that because they recognize that price signals may be uh, wrong. And so the wrong signals are sent to consumers. So markets are not always perfect. And there's a role for the government in correcting externalities and so on. But in general, the sort of the mathematics of that theory um, is a is a way of uh, m- making scientific Adam Smith's notion of the invisible hand. I found it very interesting in your paper that you you um, discuss how humans are subject to irrationality even in the functioning of the market. Uh, you talk about how adding a, a third irrelevant oh, yeah. option um, changes people's decision making as to whether right. to take a paid vacation to Rome or to Paris. Yeah. And, and yet ants aren't subject to that sort of irrationality. Yeah, because they they they're much simpler, you know, they don't they don't uh, their emotions don't enter into it, you know. Yeah, although the decision-making process is completely obscure to us. Right. And you know, individual ants make wrong decisions, but somehow the you know doing the, you know this sort of one zero choice that they adhere to allows the this superorganism uh, that's the colony to make a correct decision. So the Adam I mean, Smith's invisible hand actually works better with ants than it does with humans. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> it's very strange. It is very strange. I wonder if if that uh, you know, you mentioned the one zero, right? The sort of digital decision making of ants and how uh, the super organism of a, an ant colony uh, makes the optimal decision seemingly uh, without exception. 
I wonder if that will lead to ant com- computation at some point. Well, there's a lot of interesting papers on. I think it's they're cited in this paper, the paper that um, we just wrote. But um, you know, ant ant optimizing these ant colonies, optimizing uh, decisions. Uh, the examples you just gave. If you give a person a choice, say uh, between a vacate, you know, two week vacation, all expenses paid to Rome or Paris, they'll choose. I don't know, sixty forty or something like that between one of them. If you throw in an irrelevant alternative, like for here it would be, I mean, I live in Troy, New York, but say a two-week vacation in Schenectady, which is right next door, that shouldn't influence the decision between Rome and Paris, but somehow it does. The percentages will be different with that third irrelevant choice in there. But ants choosing uh, among nests, if you have two really good nests that they're choosing among, and then you give them a choice of a, a third inferior nest, that the introduction of that third nest doesn't affect the, the percentage of the choices. It's pretty amazing. So the, the ant rationality is superior to the human rationality. Yeah, in that it. case, yeah. yeah. Yeah, very interesting. It, and I can say I've been disconnected in two weeks is a long time in Schenectady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to college in upstate New York. I'm yeah. familiar with the area. Um, okay, great. Well, what's what's next? Do you have any? Uh, are you planning a, a Magnus Opus here at some point? I'm actually getting. Uh, you know, this has sort of opened up this whole uh, research in terms of uh, of policy, and uh, so I think the two the two major problems humans face really is inequality and uh, unsustainability. And uh, so I think we, we just need to break out of this framework of, of production, distribution, uh, allocating society's resources according to, uh, you know, how much a person produces. Now, how to do that, I don't know. But uh, I was really impressed, of course, this new book by Thomas Piketty that everybody's talking about. I mean, he calls for global controls on capital, you know, to prevent the accumulation of capital and, you know, fo- sort of overriding the system and focusing on redistribution. So a central <coughs> thing that comes out of this work is if we, this is a, maybe a natural system, but if we let it go, it's going to run us off a cliff if it's on, you know, this unchecked market behemoth or whatever it is. So we have to override the system in terms of uh, distribution. And the other thing is sustainability. Uh, and I've really been, um, again, starting to get into this notion of rewilding. That is, take large swaths of the planet, you know, out of the out of the market economy. Maybe just say it's off limits. This has to be left alone to revert to nature, uh, and so on. And this is happening in uh, certain parts uh, of the world, like uh, Chernobyl, for example, um, the DMZ between North Korea and South Korea. There's parts of Eastern Europe that are people are leaving uh, the land and moving to the cities, and so wolves and uh, you know native cats are moving back in, and so on. Um, I've been working with the United Nations uh, to try to uh, preserve an area called the Sud Marsh in South Sudan. Um, nobody's ever heard of it, but it's one of the largest wetland areas uh, in the world. It's you know, sort of teeming with wildlife. People have, have been kept out of it uh, because of the civil war there uh, and so on. I mean, uh, not people. They're people that live there, the tribal peoples. <clears throat> um, but there's a plan to drain it, uh, something called the Jungli Canal, which would... Uh, bypass the marsh and divert water from, uh, uh, you know, the Nile, you know, directly uh, downstream into Sudan and water for Egypt and so on. 
So uh, that project is stopped. Uh, the digging machine was blown up by the by the rebels a few years ago, but it's still a, a viable option. Uh, you know, there, it just uh, it's an area that should be protected, and I'm working uh, on a sort of a project to really document the value of that that marsh. Hmm. Uh, I try to try to save it. So fantastic. That's. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the the concept of rewilding is something that uh, I discuss a lot on this podcast, both in terms oh, yeah. of um, right, yeah. land and and also personal. Uh, you know, the whole sort of paleo movement is largely about rewilding individuals. Yeah. There's a great um, uh, TED talk you probably know, but George Monbiot on uh, rewilding. Oh uh, no, I haven't seen that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll check that out. Um, yeah, good. Well, listen, I I hope at some point you you write a book of your for the, you know, a popular book. Do you, do you have any thoughts about doing that? Uh, my co-author and I keep talking about it. So, uh right now we're just, you know, putting this uh we're kind of t- taking a break to see what happens with this third paper. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know the the demands of academia are are heavy and and insistent. Yeah. Um, but uh you know, there, and, and I don't know to what extent you're, you, you know, you're sort of looking at the movements in the popular culture, but my sense is very strong that there are a lot of people who are looking for alternatives. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, who see, it's almost a resurgence of the sort of uh, anti-establishment feeling of the 60s. Yeah, I get that feeling too, yeah. Yeah, and someone like you, you know, it, you're in a position to, to speak very thoughtfully and uh you know with a, a lot of important information so i hope you you'll share yeah. some of it with the public and not only with your students and colleagues yeah i think I mean, the whole thing uh with this ultra sociality thing I mean, it may be a natural system but it's also an evolutionary system and evolution can't see ahead right so uh, but it's, if we are rational beings you know we can see ahead and people can look and see what happens for example with uh, with climate change which is probably the most dire thing facing us. But what does it, what do ants do? What do those ants do who look and say, wait a minute, guys, you're building a colony, you know, we're, we're, we're going in the wrong direction. You know, there's a, no- I haven't read it, I just bought it, a novel by uh, E.O. Wilson called Ant Hill. And supposedly that's the theme of this novel. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah, but uh, again, ant- I'm sure that they were... Uh, overshoot and collapse ant societies early on sure uh but they you know they've uh they've had 50 million years to work it out so you think that's what it's going to take us we're going to have to just keep well i hope we don't become ants you know i hope we preserve our individuality and uh human yeah have you read uh short history of progress by oh yeah it's a great book great yeah Great, very depressing ultimately, but yeah. But you got a, a novel too called A Scientific Romance. It's really good. Ah, interesting. I'll check that out. Yeah, I, the the reason it's depressing is that every you know, he goes through seven or eight different um, civilizations and shows how they each rise and fall, following exactly the same, yeah, seemingly organic patterns, which ties into your your idea that the. It, there is an organic uh, entity at some level on a civilizational scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, now we have you know one society, one huge society, and one planet, so there's no place to go. Exactly. They were regional collapses previously, and now you know, we're looking at a global collapse. 
Well, on that happy note, uh, <laughs> <laughs> enjoy enjoy what's out there. Go see it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, hey, thank you so much for your time. I know it's it's very precious, and I really appreciate it. And as I say, it's personally it's it's an honor to talk to someone whose work I've been citing for well over a, a decade at this point. Great. So uh, best Thank of luck you. to you. And hey, if you ever do write that book for a popular audience, uh, please let me know and we'll have you back on to pitch it. Great. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground.